I've been lucky that I've always been able to work at like these very intersectional issues. There was always a social and cultural and economic aspect to them. Like, you know, everything's health. Housing is health, transportation is health, food is health. And it's both what we do individually and what we do with populations and groups and community and understanding how people identify their community and how that impacts things. That, to me, that's what makes public health amazing, what I hope I can bring to it. It's about making a difference. That was today's guest, Dr. Danielle Green. Hello and welcome everybody to Making Public Health Personal. This podcast is brought to you by the CUNY Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy in New York City. I'm your host, Laura Mioli Farragon. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, we speak about an important study on changes in prescribed opioid dosages among patients receiving medical cannabis for chronic pain. The study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Network Open and it found an association between receiving medical cannabis for chronic pain for a longer duration and a reduction in prescription opioid dosages. Our guest today is one of the authors of this study, Dr. Danielle Green. Dr. Green is the Executive Director of State and Local Public Health Initiatives at CUNY-SPH, where she leads the programmatic, managerial, and operational aspects of the Pandemic Response Institute. Throughout her career, Dr. Green has coordinated with community, faith, academic, and governmental partners to address the opioid pandemic, aging and long-term care, maternal morbidity and mortality, AIDS, lead poisoning, and asthma through the lens of equity and social determinants. She has over 30 years of public health leadership experience in local and state government, academic, and non-for-profit settings. This important research provides evidence of medical cannabis as potentially another tool to be used in response to the opioid epidemic. We'll dig into these findings and the implications they have for clinicians and policymakers. Also, we'll speak about the history of cannabis and opioids in this country, how pain management practices have evolved as a result of the opioid epidemic, and what the future has to hold as medical and recreational cannabis becomes legal in a lot of states. Thanks for joining me today, Danielle. Thank you so much, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start by talking about the history of cannabis and the different categories of cannabis. Sure. This is a changing and complicated topic we're going to be talking about, both for cannabis and opioids. And I know it felt like a word soup, the way you just described everything. And that's because the language is so important about what we're talking about. And I'll explain that a little more. Right now, there's sort of four buckets of cannabis available in the world. There's medical cannabis, which several states have been allowing for the past 20 years in varying degrees, and it's highly regulated and usually under state control. There's recreational cannabis, which a few states, notably Colorado, was an early adopter in California and two years ago, New York, have made legal. It's also regulated, and it's because you're allowed to have possession of small amounts of cannabis, and you can be a licensed store selling it. But then there's still illicit cannabis, which is what people usually think of, right? Street sales, mm -hmm. unregulated. And then there's also something called research cannabis, which comes from the federal government in very limited amounts. So 
all of these have different potencies, different amounts of THC, which is the part that has psychotropic effects, and CBD, which is actually the part that has been shown to have some healing effects or medical impact, and also the potency, the quality, how it's developed varies greatly across all of these buckets. So that's why our language is so important. This was a study of medical cannabis in New York State. Got it. And so what are the problems with the medical marijuana program in the United States? So the medical marijuana or medical cannabis programs that have come out in the United States have actually been a very good thing. New York has one of the most controlled programs in that Providers had to go through training. Providers had to sign up into a state database to say that they would be certifying patients for medical cannabis because medical cannabis is not a drug. It cannot be prescribed and you can't buy it in a pharmacy. But patients in New York would be certified by a doctor as having a need. There were initially qualifying conditions. There was a list. And if you had one of those conditions, you could be certified for it. You would get a card, you would be on a state registry, and you could go to the licensed dispensaries, because New York State also licensed the dispensaries, and you could then purchase medical cannabis. And these dispensaries are not what people think of. They're very clean and bright, and there's pharmacists who work there. There's people who are experts in cannabis, and they would actually work with you because there were a lot of rules about what could be offered. In New York State, the highest potency was 10 milligrams of THC, and every dispensary had to offer a product that was high in THC, a product that was 50% THC, 50% CBD, and a product that was higher in CBD, as well as different modalities. So there were lozenges and gummies and tinctures and lotions and all sorts of things. What you couldn't do under the medical cannabis program until about a year ago was smoke. Flour was not allowed. And that was because we had done so much work in New York about smoking and secondhand smoke. And it seemed odd to then say, oh, but you can inhale medical cannabis. You can smoke medical cannabis. So it was very structured going forward. What the problems were is that there was a limited number of dispensaries because they were licensed and there were only a limited number of licenses and they had to apply. And because of federal regulations, cannabis business was cash-based. Because since it's illegal at the federal level, you can't use banks, you can't use credit cards. Wow. So it limits really who can have access to it. Because it was also expensive because of all these to manufacture and sell because of all these rules that were, I mean, it's tested regularly so that you know it's pure and what's in it. It was very expensive to produce. So the cost of medical cannabis is still very high. And you can only pay cash. So you can see pretty quickly that there's an economic divide about who can have access to medical cannabis. Oh, and insurance obviously doesn't cover it for all those reasons. Yeah. So what about the opioid epidemic? Because we're kind of converging the two here. How long has that been around and who has been the most affected? Everything has been around since the beginning of time. There's been a version of drugs and substances that people use since, you know, 
whatever ancient civilization you want to think of, whatever they called it, that goes for cannabis, that goes for a variation of opioids, right? It comes from the poppy seed. People are now saying we're in the fourth wave of the opioid epidemic. I think we can actually say five because a lot of people are discounting the heroin epidemic of the 70s. And I think like all of this, that's very much about who was most affected then versus who is most affected now. And race and class and all the isms really affect how we have responded to the drug issue and how we interpret each of these things. But the more recent opioid epidemic came about in a couple of ways, in a lot of ways was created by the medical community, not necessarily intentionally, but there was a movement in the 90s to see pain as the fifth vital sign. So it was a thing doctors were assessing. And part of that was because the pharmaceutical industry had thought they'd come up with a way to manage pain and had a product to sell. So of course, right. So you had oxy, all your oxys, and you had people assessing pain and trying to alleviate people's pain, which, you know, who wants to be in pain? Pain can be hugely debilitating. Pain can prevent you from your activities of daily life, can prevent you from working. But In doing this, they minimize the addictive properties of OxyContin, um, all the other oxycodone, all these opioid drugs that were now being manufactured. They also didn't really understand the biological mechanisms, which meant that people could adapt to the level of medication they were being provided pretty quickly. So there was an ongoing need to increase dosages to maintain pain relief. So people got addicted pretty quickly. People started collecting prescriptions. They would go to different doctors to get prescriptions. At the same time, people noticed you got a pretty good high off of it. So you also heard the stories of people going into other people's medical cabinets and taking oxy as another way to get high because people will always look for ways to feel better to avoid their psychological pain. At the same time, you also had inherent racism in that system because going back to the days of slavery, there's been myths about Black people being able to tolerate pain better having higher rates of pain tolerance. So you also, people's pain wasn't being treated equally. And that originally was one of the concerns about the opioid epidemic when people started responding to it and saying, oh no, we have a crisis. One of the problems was that the people who were suddenly addicted to opioids looked a lot different than people who'd been affected by the heroin epidemic and the crack cocaine epidemic and other drug issues we'd had in the past. So there's really a bad social history and racist history embedded in all of this. So then what happened was that started having pill mills where people were making a lot of money off of selling large amounts of opioid medications to people. You also have a history of people who are doing backbreaking work in factories, more physical labor, particularly in smaller rural towns throughout the U.S., who were getting injured and were getting through workers' compensation or their doctors large amounts of prescription opioids and ended up you know, trading one problem of pain incapacity for being incapacitated by their addiction to opioids. Then people started worrying about this. So they started having prescribing guidelines because and saying, you know, 
pharmaceutical companies, doctors shouldn't be prescribing so much. We need to look at what's happening with all these prescription practices. What ended up happening there is that people who were on high levels of opioids for long periods of time started getting cut off. So they were dependent, in some cases addicted, to high levels of opioids, but they could no longer get them through prescriptions and pharmacies. So they started looking at what was available on the street, illicit market. That's when fentanyl enters the scene. So people who've always been selling drugs illicitly started mixing fentanyl, which is another opioid, much more potent, much more toxic, into what was available to be sold on the streets opioids and not telling anyone that that's what they were cutting the opioids with because it stretched their opioid supply longer and mm-hmm. fentanyl was cheaper, but they got to sell it for the same price. So people who were looking for a cheaper alternative for opioids because they couldn't afford to get the pills anymore, the prescription pills, or they weren't getting it from a doctor anymore, started um, buying fentanyl-laced opioids on the street. And then you started seeing a huge increase in overdose deaths because people were more likely to overdose and more likely to die because of the fentanyl being in the opioids. Now, the latest wave is all that plus the impact of COVID. So the isolation, the inability to get to therapy, the people reverting to their worst habits and addictions to cope with the psychological effects of COVID have now added another dimension to all of this. So it sounds like there are a lot of risks of taking opioids. What are those risks versus taking cannabis? Opioids themselves You can take too much. You can become addicted. You can overdose. Cannabis, first of all, medical cannabis, the amounts you can buy are limited as well. If you're looking at all cannabis, medical, recreational, illicit, there are some people who have reactions to cannabis and have side effects. So there's people who get truly sick. There's actually a cannabis syndrome where some people really get physically sick after they've taken too much cannabis. There's the psychoactive effects, there's dry mouth, there's dizziness. What we haven't seen is overdose and death specifically from cannabis. And I want to be very clear about this because this is like I'm talking about just from taking cannabis, however you take it. That doesn't mean people haven't died because they've done stupid things while high. And that there's not a concern about responsible use of cannabis, right? Just like alcohol itself, if you have a glass of wine, does not inherently do something bad to you. Too much alcohol regularly can hurt your system, your liver, etc. If you drive while intoxicated, you can hurt yourself and other people. You can make stupid decisions, (laughs) The same is true for cannabis. So it's not without risk, but the risk isn't inherently about the taking of cannabis the way it is with opioids. Got it. So tell us about your study. Who was included in the study and what are your findings? We looked very specifically at medical cannabis and prescription opioids. So this wasn't necessarily about people who had an opioid addiction. 
This was, we used two data sets, prescription monitoring database in New York state and all states is where the records of narcotics and other controlled, legal controlled substance are. So all the things DEA regulates, which are a lot of prescription medications. You still like doctors used to have to sign that prescription in triple pit back when we had paper prescriptions. All of records of all of that are in the prescription monitoring database because New York had such a regulated medical cannabis program. All of the records for who was certified patients and what they bought at the dispensaries was in a medical marijuana program monitoring database. So we were able to match the patients and look at their cannabis and opioid records. So it's very, so I just want to be very clear. It's, you know, prescription opioids, it's medical cannabis. It's patients who the reason why they were taking cannabis was for chronic pain. And we matched them over a three-year period, 2017, 2018, 2019. So what we wanted to know was whether medical cannabis if you took it as an adjunct therapy to prescription opioids, could it lower the dose of opioids, the dosage of opioids you were taking because there was this concern that people on higher doses for longer periods of time were more at risk of an overdose or switching to the illicit market or losing their access to medical care because there were also, I forgot to mention this part, as part of the crackdown on overprescribing Healthcare providers who had a lot of patients on high doses of opioids were getting investigated by law enforcement and were often getting shut down either temporarily while the investigation was going on or losing their license because people thought they were not engaging in good practices. The problem was because of that threat, nobody wanted to pick up a panel of patients who were all on over 90 milligrams of opioids and continue their care. So patients are losing access to care. So we want to see like what were other alternatives to opioids and ways of reducing opioid dosages so that we reduce some of this risk. Mm-hmm. So we looked for people who had been on prescription opioids for over a year and were receiving medical cannabis. And we compared people who had gotten just one dispensing of medical cannabis, which is a 30-day supply, with people who continued getting medical cannabis over eight months. And the reason why we did 30 days and stopped versus 30 days and continued for eight months is because we needed people to be similar in their ability to access medical cannabis. So that's why we couldn't compare it to people who had never tried medical cannabis, because we knew from the start of all the problems with access to medical cannabis. Mm -hmm. So what we found was really exciting and it could be important for providers and policymakers. Over the eight months, we found that the people who continued medical cannabis had a reduction in their opioid dose. We stratified meaning we broke them up according to their baseline MME, which is morphine milligrams equivalent. It's how we count the dosage for opioids. And so we looked at people who had less than 50 milligrams, which is considered a very low dose, people who had between 50 and less than 90, 
in people with more 90 or more MME, because that's considered the high dose group. And all groups among the people who took longer medical cannabis had a reduction, 48% opioid dosage reduction in the lowest group, 47% in the middle group, and 51% reduction in baseline dosage among the highest group, among people who were started on a dose of 90 MME or higher, which is dramatic. I think it's interesting to note that your study doesn't capture pain levels. So we don't know you know, whether someone thinks they're in one out of 10 pain versus 10 out of 10 pain. Mm -hmm. Why was that? And how do the factors you took into consideration make this a more accurate study? We were limited by what was in the databases because this was a essentially a retrospective study. I mean, we were doing the analysis from 2017 through 2020, but, you know, it was people already had the medications or the cannabis and we we're looking retrospectively. And so we weren't interacting directly with the patients. We were looking at their administrative records and pain level was not something that's on your cannabis or opioid dispensing record, right? That would be in your medical record with your doctor or something you would get from interviewing. Got it. We did have the qualifying condition, the reason why they got the cannabis that's not always even in the opioid record. And we focused on chronic pain because it was the largest group and the most similar, you know, but there are other reasons like cancer, end of life, certain neurological diseases, and those could have different effects because anything that's affecting your body, things could turn out differently. Yeah. And also pain levels is kind of a subjective thing. So it's it's super accurate to have just the amount of dosage that they were able to reduce. Right. And you know, you can kind of infer higher doses, more pain. If you dream of making a difference in the world, a public health degree or certificate can give you the tools to do just that. The City University of New York's Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy equips public health professionals to advance not only a healthier New York City, but a healthier world for us all. We want you to join us in our mission. Visit sph.cuny.edu to learn more about our programs. No matter where you are in your career, CUNY SPH offers a broad range of degree and certificate programs to not only help you advance in your career, but to have a real impact on the world. Public health professionals are needed now more than ever. Join us. Visit sph.cuny.edu to learn more. So tell us about the second part of your research. We have a study under review right now. We just submitted the manuscript looking at over a shorter time period whether medical, you know, same group of people, whether medical cannabis led to people stopping prescription opioids altogether. It's under review. So all I can say is it looks intriguing. It's worth reading. It's worth them publishing. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be quiet. Yes. You know, and effects are different at different dosages. And Mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense, too. And it may be that there's, you know, a waterfall pattern as you have to decrease and then get to a point to stop. Or mm-hmm. maybe some people can't, will never stop. But we're really, this is, you know, I see this as 
harm reduction. I'm not saying go out and get cannabis anywhere you can. Mm -hmm. Because again, we were looking at tested, controlled cannabis. You know, we know the source. We didn't break down by whether people were using high THC or high CBD. That's another study that would be very interesting. We also didn't look at the modality, right? Mm -hmm. So were people using lozenges or oils or tinctures or lotions or moms? You know, it may be different by the modality, but Mm -hmm. it's a really good start. It's a strong association. And it's one of the few studies that looked at this at an individual patient level. There's been a lot of studies that compared overall, did overall prescribing go up or down for opioids, comparing before and after a state legalized some form of cannabis. But, you know, but that doesn't necessarily tell you that the patient whose opioid prescriptions changed was mm-hmm. actually availing themselves of cannabis. This is one of the only studies that actually looked at that. Yeah. So some people may think that this is a pro-cannabis study. What would you say to that? I would say that it's a study in favor of using all the tools at our disposal in a medical setting to treat a medical problem. It is, right? It's medical cannabis. It's prescription opioids. You know, the study did not look at people with addiction or substance use issues. It did not look at recreational cannabis. I will say that we know anecdotally because of all the laws on cannabis that for a long time, people have been using cannabis to self-medicate. And, you know, I would encourage as New York builds out the recreational cannabis program for people who are buying illicit cannabis to move to the recreational program so that they are getting a product that has some controls on it and they know what they're getting and it's a safer product. I would also recommend that people who are using um, recreational cannabis to self-medicate or to deal with pain to consider the medical cannabis because you can actually talk with experts about the different types of cannabis, the different combinations of CBD and THC. And you might find something that's actually more helpful to you and would allow you to be more functional in your daily life than perhaps you are buying something on the street, which for the most part, the nature of the illicit market is to tend towards really high THC. Mm-hmm. So I think people should try to avail themselves of this and of the controls that are available. And I really encourage more research in this area, which has been a really hard thing to do because of cannabis being scheduled as a highly controlled substance at the federal level. Biden just recently signed into law something that would allow more research and also would improve the quality of the federally controlled supply of cannabis that's available to researchers, because that's been a longstanding problem. Not only was federal funding for cannabis research and the availability of cannabis for cannabis research tightly controlled, but 
it's been documented that the quality of the cannabis that the federal government provided to researchers to use in research was not at all comparable to what people could get in medical or legal recreational programs or through the illicit market. So it wasn't representative of what actually was happening. So that's beginning to change. Also, the discrepancies between state and federal policy may change. You know, under the Obama administration, the attorney general issued the Cole memo, which basically said, yeah, there's a federal prohibition on cannabis, but states are allowing it to be sold. And it's not a good use of federal resources to go after states for something they made legal or for people who have obtained cannabis through that legal process. Sessions reversed the Cole memo in the Trump administration, even though the Justice Department didn't really implement it. The new attorney general under Biden has said that philosophically they are returning to the Cole memo, but he has not actually put out a Garland memo yet stating Um, this policy. So there's just so much that goes into all of this that makes it mm -hmm. very complicated and confusing. And it seems to go back and forth quite a bit. But based on your study, we know that medical cannabis may help patients on long-term opioid treatment reduce dosages. So how would federal legalization of medical cannabis affect opioid use? Or would it? It, It's a great question. I think that it would both help and hurt. And I think we actually have a great example because the FDA just announced that it has approved Narcan which is the brand name of naloxone, which is the drug used to reverse opioid overdose. It is approved over-the-counter sale of Narcan. Wow. Which is a big win. Amazing, because to date, it's been prescription only, which has made it harder to come by. Um, A lot of state and local health departments distribute it for free to make it available. There's also been a lot of programs to make it reduced price. Um, Medicaid and Medicare cover it. So the fact that you can now just walk into the store and buy it is a huge, wonderful thing for access, except now that it's over the counter, it's not necessarily covered by insurance or Medicaid or Medicare. So the price just increased dramatically, hypothetically. And it's only available to people who can afford it. Right. So they've said, you know, they're now going to work on that. How do we bring the price back down? How do we make it covered by insurance, even though it's over the counter? But it got a lot more available in theory and a whole lot more complicated in practice. So I think federal legalization of medical cannabis might be in a similar pathway. I think that making it legal federally will make a lot more healthcare providers willing to recommend it to their patients. It might make a lot of patients more comfortable with it. There is a theory that the more medical cannabis there is and the more demand for it, the price will go down, which it desperately needs to go down. At the same time, depending on how that program is structured, once they say it's legal, there could be a whole lot of other complications. I also think that you get into confusion. For example, in New York, the legalization of recreational cannabis, what that means is you're not going to be arrested for having a small portion 
of cannabis on earth. I believe it's one ounce, like personal use amounts mm-hmm. and personal use for like a reasonable day and a reasonable person, right? Yeah. And it means that they will now license stores to sell it. And there's a whole licensure process, right? Just like there's the state liquor authority. And if you are a store that wants to sell liquor and alcohol, you need a license to do that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's been interpreted as, oh, anyone can sell it now. So you see a lot of unlicensed weed stores popping up. Mm -hmm. They're not selling the controlled product. They don't have a license to sell. They're not under the state program. They're, you know, unfortunately, they're popping up too fast for inspectors to go in and shut them down. But people should know those aren't the stores that were meant or the product that was meant when the state legalized recreational adult use. It also, you know, there's a proliferation of selling it on the illicit market more blatantly and people thinking, oh, I can't be arrested for this now. And yes, there was over arresting and too much incarceration, particularly for black and brown populations. And that needed to stop. And there's been a great justice movement, social justice movement to expunge records and change that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean the illicit sales are okay. They actually developed the program in a way that there would be taxes from the sale in stores and those taxes would go back into the communities that were most hurt by the criminalization of cannabis. So there's a lot of confusion right now. There's a lot. Yeah, I'm even seeing for my small town where I live, we're kind of voting on where those stores can be. Can they be next to a school, like a certain amount of distance? So there, there's just a lot going on and a lot to decide on. Yes. And there needs to be educational programs. And again, I go back to alcohol. Like it's a legal product with the potential for harm. And so there's a lot of education. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of, you know, we're not saying just put cannabis out there for everybody willy-nilly and everyone should partake all the time. There are uses and there should be responsible adult choices and there's risks and benefits and people need to evaluate that. So what do you hope this research will accomplish and how do you hope it'll make an impact? I hope that it opens up the minds of healthcare providers to see that there are alternatives to opioids You know, I think anytime we approach something as a zero-sum game, nobody wins. So if we can look at this as there are times when medical cannabis is a preferred treatment or in in addition to treatment, and that it makes sense for some people, and that it can help in the situation where there have been a lot of harms and a lot of harms that came from outside forces. And so maybe we need to open our minds to do a little better by our patients and allow choice. And I think anytime you can have an open dialogue between a patient and a healthcare professional so that patients don't feel like they have to keep secrets from their provider about Mm -hmm. what they're actually doing. And providers can be open about what the history and what the motivations are for certain things. And you come to a joint treatment decision everyone's in a better position. And was there anything in terms of access and equity that you hope this study will affect? You know, there's a lot of opioid prescribing in Medicaid. 
And there's also still not a recognition of who's in pain and what pain is and a lot of biases. But medical cannabis as an option for people who are in, you know, different population groups is not an option. You know, it's expensive. It's cash only. It's not easy to get to the dispensaries for a lot of people. Rural populations don't have access to dispensaries. Um, Dispensaries do tend to be more affluent, more white communities. I Mm -hmm. think that you're going to see more recreational cannabis stores in black and brown communities than medical dispensaries. I would very much encourage co-location, you know, and hopefully that also that co-location or someone, a store that's offering both, maybe they, there'll be a price effect that will drive the price down on the medical side. Hopefully. Hopefully. You know, and that said, there is a growing cannabis industry and we need to watch out for that too. It's both good and bad whenever we create a commercialization of a product. So we just Mm -hmm. have to watch carefully. You can now share, like, and subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, and on our YouTube channel. To find out more about CUNY SPH, you can visit sph.cuny.edu or connect with us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search CUNY SPH. This is your host, Laura Mioli Farragon, signing off. And while public health has a global impact, that doesn't mean we can't make it personal.